Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Holiday Powers, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Natalie Haran about her new book, Fluxus Forms, Scores, Multiples, and the Eternal Network. Natalie, thank you so much for joining us here. Thank you for having me, Holiday. I wonder if we could start by having you tell us a bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I am an associate professor of art history in the University of Houston School of Art. So I'm based in Houston, Texas. And my research uh, focuses on modern and contemporary art history, broadly speaking, at least in terms of what I teach. Um, But my research so far in my career has really focused on this uh, really important paradigm shifting moment of the 1960s in the United States and in parts of Western Europe, as well as bits of Asia um, and neo-avant-garde movements um, kind of coming out of that period. So um, my work tends to be pretty interdisciplinary, and that is an outcome of following what artists are doing in that moment. Um, So you know, I'm an art historian, um, mainly focused on the visual, but my work has pulled me into musicology, performance studies, literary theory, um, poetry, dance. Um, so it's been a very interesting and robust field to enter into. And I've, I've enjoyed having conversations with colleagues uh, working in adjacent fields. So tell us how you came to write Fluxus Forms. So um, I did my PhD at UCLA, so I found myself in Los Angeles, and one of the first courses I took in graduate school was co-taught by Miwan Kwan and Marsha Reed. Uh, Marsha Reed was um, curator at the Getty Research Institute, um, and this was a seminar focused on fluxus, and I had a sort of like primordial memory of encountering fluxus works at the Walker Art Center. Um, I grew up in the Minneapolis area, and the Walker has a wonderful collection of Fluxus works that I must have seen as a young person, because once I entered the seminar, I started remembering seeing these curious displays of boxes and ephemera that I, I remember being kind of magnetically attracted to as a young person, but didn't really know anything about. So one of the things that was so wonderful about this seminar is that we were in situ in the special collections at the GRI, looking at the Jean Brown collection, which is their major holding of Fluxus, um, but also a collection that stretches back to Dada and surrealism and forward in time to uh, male art of the, the 80s and so forth. Um, So it was really deep dive into Fluxus from a highly material perspective. Um, And I just really, I clicked with the work. um, And I, I noticed that uh, sort of historiographically thinking that it was time for sort of a new generation, it seemed to me of fluxus scholarship, um, of folks like myself who didn't have a personal connection, a direct connection to the artists as um, so many of the existing scholarship. Um, I'm thinking of for example, Hannah Higgins, who um, has a wonderful book called Fluxus Experience, and she also has very kind of direct contact to the movement via um, her parents, the artists Dick Higgins and Alison Knowles, um, or even people like John Hendricks, who published the landmark compendium uh, kind of Fluxus catalog, the Fluxus Codex, who also um, was kind of intermixed with the movement, um, knew a lot of the artists personally. So I thought that um, 
it actually would be beneficial for um, someone to kind of come in through the archive um, and, you know, generationally as someone not directly connected to the artists, but coming um, to the work from a very kind of materially inflected perspective, I felt like I could contribute something to the discourse. And there was also a lot of scholarship to respond to, which I, which is what I tend to like. I like to be able to, um, sort of build on a lot of kind of primary groundwork scholarship and be able to bring kind of new interpretive frames while still hewing pretty closely to the materials. Um, so to kind of get closer to the point of your question, um, the book is motivated by this question of like, what is the fluxus object? What do we do with all of this stuff, this fluxus stuff, uh, this pro proliferation of objects? Uh, scattered through museum collections internationally now at this point, given that Fluxus had kind of gained this reputation of being an anti-art, anti-object movement. So here I was in the Research Institute collections, like confronted with just boxes and boxes of Fluxus things. And it seemed to me that there hadn't been um, a really kind of systematic accounting of the different, what I call formats that Fluxus artists we're working in and also an attempt to trace a kind of intellectual history of the development of these formats. So my project ends up being both highly material um, in as much as I'm accounting for like, you know, how things were made, what they were made of and with, how they circulated, but then also trying to join that material cultural approach with a theoretical framework that can explain how all of these various um, formats are connected by a kind of central logic. And so for anybody listening that doesn't know what Fluxus is or who Fluxus is, can you just describe what that term refers to? Yes, thank you for bringing me back to that. I know I dived in quite quickly. Even though I've been working on this material for 15 plus years, it's still hard for me sometimes to give the elevator speech of what Fluxus is, which I think makes it a really interesting topic of research. But um, Fluxus was an international collective of artists, uh, primarily based in New York and Western Europe. The first events in Europe were in Wiesbaden, Germany, Western Germany, um, bits of France, the Netherlands, and Scandinavia. Um, also uh, some activity around Tokyo, but uh, mainly centered in New York, a generation of artists who uh, rejected abstract expressionist painting and were interested in kind of breaking down the boundaries between artistic media. So uh, Fluxus um, innovated this idea of intermedia, so working in between mediums, in between painting and sculpture, in between sculpture and music, in between music and poetry. And the work that they did was also motivated by a desire to bring art out of galleries and museums and into the hands and minds of everyday people. So the formats that they created were really designed to connect art with everyday life. And that usually took the form either of performances and performance instructions, which they called event scores. They're kind of text-based recipes for things that you can do um, with everyday objects um, or activities. Uh, drip music, we'll probably talk about that in a, in a bit, is one of my favorite event scores. And then they also produced what I call in the book Fluxbox multiples. They're game-like, um, unlimited editioned objects where um, found items would be collected in a box, and sometimes the box would have an instruction for what to do with the objects, and this was a way to uh, give people a chance to perform Fluxus activities in situ, you know, at home in their own space or with friends. Um, again, with this idea of, of uh, giving people a way, a means, a tool for integrating art 
into everyday life. Your book starts not with an introduction, but with a prelude. Can you talk a bit about that structure and then also tell us about how you enter into this topic within the book? Sure. I decided to give the book a prelude and a coda. So these are musical terms that signal the beginnings of my project in musicology. Um, So that's really the focus of chapter one, which I I think we'll get to. Um, um, So that's a signal of the musical origins of Fluxus and of my narrative of the group. Um, And I begin the introduction, the prelude, with George Breck's drip music. Um, Drip music is a score um, that he wrote and refined between 1959 and 62. Um, The title is Drip Music, Drip Event, and I'll I'll read it. Um, And then maybe listeners can do it at home after, after, or stop the podcast and do it. And then uh, you can continue listening for single or multiple performance, a source of dripping water and an empty vessel are arranged so that the water falls into the vessel. Second version dripping. And um, yeah, this is a, a kind of emblematic fluxus event score that was performed in this first international concert tour that the artists uh, organized starting in Wiesbaden, Germany in 1962 and moving through um, Paris, Dusseldorf, uh, Copenhagen, Amsterdam, um, really debuting Fluxus ideas. And um, I hone in on this score because this idea of the drip, of dripping, um, is sort of definitional to the very um, idea of flux and fluxus, the the name of the movement that Lithuanian-American organizer George Machunas came up with. The definition of a kind of, if you try to look it up in the dictionary, you'll, you'll encounter the idea of dripping. But I thought that the drip was also a kind of emblem of how form operates across fluxus. So in the prelude, I begin with drip music. I do a close reading of it. I chart through photographs the different ways in which it was performed um, to show that the work of art in Fluxus is a kind of ontological mutant that changes and transforms um, and involves multiple uh, kind of participants and interpreters, um, that it's this very generative figure for thinking about a work of art that can change, change its shape over time, change its sort of like outward appearance, but still kind of have the same bones. Um, So I compare it with other works by Fluxus people like Mieko Shiomi or Tomas Schmidt or Namjoon Paik, who also were playing with the drip as a form And, and to show that this was actually a kind of uh, a fluid dynamic was of interest to um, many of the artists involved. Within the prelude, you also describe your overall perspective that you are elaborating within the book. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So um, the other reason why I begin with drip music is because it's a score. And uh, sort of getting back to um, what I was indicating with this musical framework, I I do trace a number of Fluxus formats, but the argument of the book as a whole is really that Fluxus production and its ability to kind of, um, the way in which it enables the work of art to kind of change its appearance over time and through different realizations is rooted in the logic of the score. Um, so the, so I argue throughout the book that the, the score is a kind of blueprint for the fluxus object. If we think about scores and what they enable, um, you have a kind of individual composer who writes a score and then the score is, um, 
it can be circulated, it can be realized by different people. In fact, it's a score is meant to be realized by different people. And so it involves a kind of collaborative um, production and distribution model that we see in operation across Fluxus, which may not seem radical, you know, from the perspective of music, but it is from from the ground of visual art, right? And and a kind of industry, a kind of tradition that is premised on the valuing, even the fetishization of an individual genius author creating an object with his or her own hand signed limited edition or a completely unique object. And so um, what I argue in the book is that like the kind of the, the radical core of Fluxus practice is really kind of importing this musical logic of the score into a visual arts context and, and treating all of their production in this manner as if it is based on a score. And it's really that, um, that score logic that enables their work to take intermedia forms, to explore that intermedia space, to um, kind of change its form over time. And it's what makes the work still very fresh and open to its context. It's Fluxus's event scores in particular are really fun to teach. They're really fun to program because they are um, what I like to say, they're porous to their context, that they they are, they end up being situation specific, not site specific, but situation specific, because you always have to use like the stuff that is around you in order in order to realize them. So continuing on about this question of the score, your first chapter focuses on graphic notation for the Fluxus event score. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so, um, oh, I should also say too that um, I haven't said very much about individual authors because I'm emphasizing Fluxus, but one thing I, 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 I need to admit about the book is that it's a very um, sort of intuitive cut through Fluxus participants, you know, there's so many people that one could write about. It's really intimidating um, to try to approach the group as a whole. And so my choice of artists that I, that I really highlight and focus on um, include George Machunas, George Brecht, um, and also the French Fluxus artist Robert Filiou. But there are a lot of, there's, there's a much larger cast of char characters that come, that that are highlighted throughout. Dick Higgins appears a lot because he was kind of a major theorist of the group. Um, the, I talk about Namjoon Paik, Mieko Shiyomi, Takako Saito, Benjamin Patterson, Daniel Shvuri, Milan Knichak, Robert Watts, Larry Miller. Um, there are lots of folks who do come in. Um, and so uh, the, 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 the individuals that kind of have their names in the chapters um, are really just kind of nodes kind of nodal points that I uh, spend time with just so I can illuminate this idea of the formats. But um, yeah, regarding chapter one. So this was my, this was probably the most difficult chapter for me to write. And of course it was the first one. It's the longest one. So anybody listening, I tell people, if you can get through chapter one, I owe you a drink or a treat or something, <laughs> but um, it does a lot of heavy lifting and I'm really proud of it uh, because it really pushed me as a scholar to get out of my comfort zone in art history and have like an authentic engagement with musicology. Um, and I really benefited too from um, kind of scholarly dialogue with folks like Michael Galope, who's a musicologist um, and helped me kind of work through some of some of the kind of um, aesthetic theory. Um, so Fluxus event scores have been treated in Fluxus scholarship, but as someone who was spending a lot of time just like looking through event scores in the archive and seeing like how visual they are, there are like diagrams on them. There are kind of line drawings. There's um, kind of collaged elements integrated into them. A lot of Brecht's event scores have, they have bullet points, which are used in a very particular way. So I was really struck by the kind of 
visual quality of the scores. But the existing scholarship um, that we had at that point um, by folks like Julia Robinson, Liz Coates, was really focused on um, in, uh, theorizing the scores through a kind of linguistic analysis, which is incredibly helpful for um, thinking about them in terms of their relationship to later conceptual art or relationship to concrete poetry. Um, but I felt like there was a little corner of the story missing pertaining to graphic notation. So in the 1950s, the New York school composers, John Cage, um, Morton Feldman, Earl Brown, Christian Wolff, uh, were experimenting with forms of notation that exploded the staff um, or left it entirely in order to like map out sound across the page as if they were painting a picture. And some of them, Morton Feldman's in, in spe uh, specifically, were in conversation with abstract expressionist painters. Um, but there was this kind of budding generation of Fluxus people who were looking at what the New York School composers were doing, these graphic scores, and kind of taking that as an invitation to, um, as visual artists, make scores of their own. And the crucible through which a lot of this energy passed was John Cage's experimental composition course, which he taught at the New School in the late 1950s. And George Brecht took that class, Alan Capro, um, who invented the Fluxus adjacent genre of happenings. Uh, Capro attended the class, um, Jackson Macklow, um, all kinds of people moved through Cage's class. And Cage was still experimenting with graphic scores in that very same moment and kind of brought this unfolding dialogue into his classroom. So I, I, I never really leave my corner of art, his, my, my sort of discipline of art history. And I, at some point, I sort of took it as um, I, I decided that it would be helpful to approach graphic scores as visual objects. So I never fully leave the realm of art history. I borrow some things from musicology, um, but I wanted to really analyze them as, as visual objects. So I, I talk about gra graphic scores um, and I relate them back to early 20th century um, kind of experiments with intermedial thinking and notation, like Vasily Kandinsky's uh, lovely book, Point and Line to Plane, or I think about um, Lisitsky's prones, these kind of diagrammatic canvases that can be turned around in different directions. And um, I'm thinking about all of these kinds of scores as um, diagrams, that they're fundamentally diagrammatic. Um, certainly the graphic scores look like diagrams there. You see grids, you see lines, you see kind of like crystalline shapes in some of the, the crazy scores that the New York school composers come up with. Um, and those look like diagrams, but the kind of like rhetorical turn I take in the chapter that I hope readers can follow along with is that I argue that even something like George Brecht's drip music, which is just a text, is fundamentally diagrammatic in nature because it's describing relationships of objects and activities in time and space. And it's like a fundamentally um, translatable, scalable instruction. Um, so yeah, like I said, this, this first chapter does a lot of heavy lifting. Um, Alongside the score, the diagram is an important kind of figure throughout the book. And I begin to lay, lay it out there, um, leaning a lot on uh, prior scholarship by folks like Molly Nesbitt and David Joselet, who begin to think about the diagram with regard to early 20th century data. My argument is that we still have the diagram in operation as an art historical kind of model, a theoretical model in the 1960s, but the way that Fluxus artists engage it is to really like, as I say, bring the diagram to bear on reality. It's not just some a visual thing that sits on the page. It's something that you you get you actually realize, you act out, you interpret it. In your second chapter, you then move into thinking about the relationship between Fluxus and painting, especially after abstract expressionism. Yeah, um, that chapter um, was the 
was the last chapter, the new, the last new chapter I wrote. And just for a little behind the scenes um, uh, of how the book sort of transformed between dissertation and book, that was actually a chapter um, that one of my advanced reviewers said, you don't need a chapter on abstract expressionism. Like we've had enough of Pollock and the kind of neo-avant-garde. And I, and I, I really felt firmly that no, I needed this chapter. And I was really proud, like once I did the chapter and it went under review again, I converted this reviewer. I would convince them that this chapter needed to be in the book. Um, and one of the one of the extraordinary finds um, that was only made possible in the age of like deep Google searching was that I discovered that um, there is a 1956 canvas by Alfonso Osorio, who is you know, a, a, an abstract expressionist painter, buddies with Jackson Pollock, a, a canvas from 1956 by Alfonso Osorio called Fluxus, written exactly the same way as the movement's name. And I only found this because it was included in the, the Whitney, um, we now know it as the Whitney Biennial, but um, yeah, it was basically in the 1957 version of the Whitney Biennial and it's in the catalog. The name is there. And so, you know, doing like deep text search, it popped up and lo and behold, this painting exists. Um, I have a beautiful color plate of it. It's a, it's a kind of disgusting, gross, yellow, black, orange, painting that is just very, very murky, muddy. Um, but I love it because it, it begins to open up and connect with um, Fluxus artists' experiments with painting, um, which, which really hasn't been dealt with. Um, and so the chapter focuses a lot on George Brecht, who at the time was making, um, in, in the late 50s, was making these um, bedsheet paintings, these chance paintings where he would crumple up a bedsheet and then douse it with a mixture of water and ink and kind of um, let the pigment soak in and then stretch it back out. So it was a very um, chance-based mode of painting where he uh, was really letting the pigment make the work and fully embracing chance to the extent that he didn't even visually, he couldn't really visually see what was happening with his pigment. Um, and George Machunas at the same time was experimenting with a kind of painting slash drawing practice where he would wet um, a, a paper surface and then, uh, you know, do a drop of India ink. And you can imagine the ink kind of osmotically like migrating uh, uh, through the page. So I was trying to... Um, account for these fluxus forms of painting, these proto-fluxus forms of painting, this transitional moment before fluxus really is founded in 1962. Um, but it becomes clear that the, this, what I call it imminent formalism, that is to say the, that these artists are really interested in letting the materials that they're using determine the form of the final work of art, that this imminent formalism is like a core aspect of, of this fluxus logic of fluxus formats. And it relates to what I was saying before about the event scores being kind of situation specific, that um, when you have a work of art that, you know, it begins with an instruction, but it's sort of performed or realized or interpreted in a situation with whatever materials you have at hand, the final output, the final, the final manifestation is going to have a kind of imminent formalism. That is to say, like, it's how it looks at the end of the day is, is kind of be derived um, from kind of like the, the imminent materials, the, the materials imminent to the situation in, in which you create it. So, um, and the other thing I'll say about the second chapter is that it, it forms an important counterpart to my thinking about the diagram in chapter one. So um, I, I am a bit of a Deleuzian. So uh, there's a part of the chapter where I um, very much reliant, though, also on the interpretive work of Manuel Delanda. Um, I talk about Deleuze's idea of the diagram, which is very much um, emphasizing um, the sort of immanentist 
logic, that is to say, materials be owed to their atomic structure, um, have a kind of limited set of forms that they can take. So I, again, I come back to the drip, you know, liquids, they, they have a viscosity, they have a deliquescence, they have a way that they bleed and seep. And this is a kind of imminent form. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of formal possibility or propensity that is sort of baked into the materials. And um, this in Deleuze's theorization is actually diagrammatic. It's, it's fundamentally diagrammatic. So like on an atomic level, there's like an invisible diagram of what liquid paint can do. Um, so the diagram comes back in chapter two. Um, and, you know, between those two ideas of the diagram as like, a visual structure and a diagram is something that like determines the shapes that a work of art can take. I have a kind of robust um, kind of theorization of, of uh, that I then can move on from in the ensuing chapters. So then your next chapter focuses on George Brecht and the notational object. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Um, this chapter is one where I look closely at the sort of um, assemblages that George Brecht made in the late 50s. Um, again, this is sort of preceding Fluxus by a minute, um, but his objects are really important because they really model what Fluxus multiples in general will become and the, the kinds of ways in which they work. Um, so George Brecht is making these sculptural assemblages where he's working with ready-made objects. Um, a lot of times he's, he's selecting objects that have a kind of interactive quality, um, like balls or children's toys, um, or even things like thermometers, um, that respond to their environment, keys, toothbrushes, and putting them into boxes or kind of cabinet, like, um, uh, structuring devices. Um, and initially he pairs these with instructions. So you would like encounter a suitcase and like there would be an instruction of what you were supposed to do uh, with the objects inside. But eventually he kind of lets go of the instruction. So in that chapter, I introduced this idea of the notational object, by which I mean an object that in and of itself, without any textual apparatus, the object implies a kind of interaction, uh, that an interaction should take place. Um, and this is a chapter in which I also talk a little bit about the 1960s context of the object. Um, we've sort of lost this a little bit in the way we think about 60s art history nowadays, but um, in the 60s moment, there people were starting to turn away from the term sculpture and use the word object in order to indicate that that these kinds of works, like they address the beholder in a very different way. Like they wouldn't be on a pedestal, they might be on a table. Um, there was nothing sort of, um, uh, sort of transcendent about them or illusionistic. It was just like, you know, an everyday thing that was sort of put in the viewer's space. Um, um, so this was sort of an, a necessary chapter to write in order to, to lead viewers into a discussion of fluxus multiples and really emphasize the kind of new uh, post-sculptural or anti-sculptural kind of aesthetic framework that fluxus objects were engaging, which was positioned very much counter to how... Um, modernist sculpture or like traditional sculpture is usually regarded. Your next chapter then moves to focus on George Machunas and the flux box or what you call transitional commodities. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, um, I had a lot of fun writing this chapter. Um, I The first draft of this chapter I wrote, um, I wrote when, or I, fi I finished it, I polished it when I was very pregnant and I also had just had a baby. So um, there are parts of this chapter where that 
there are like flashes of recognition of that, um, which I'm which I'm very happy about. So in earlier parts of the book, I really um, fixate on the figure of the drip. By the time we get to this chapter, I'm really fixated on the figure of the whole. And this continues some of the um, the engagement with art histories of sculpture that I began in the prior chapter on Brecht's notational objects. Um, this chapter on Machunis is really trying to account for how fluxus, flux box multiples were made, how they circulated, and then like reading them formally in, a, in as, as deep of a way as I can, and also to um, try to theorize their aesthetic address. Um, so one of the kind of art historical voices that I was most in conversation with in this chapter is Benjamin Buclo's account of Robert Watts's sculpture, which he takes as kind of paradigmatic of Flux's objects in general. And a, a lot of things that Robert Watts was making in this moment were like shiny objects, like chrome-plated eggs and even um, copies of African totems um, that he made very shiny. And so there was this very kind of like emphasis on the, the fluxus um, quasi-fetishes and the way that they kind of um, troll um, the... 1960s commodity object and commodity culture. But when I was, you know, spending a lot of time with with these objects in the Jean Brown collection at the Getty, I would notice that there were all these holes again and again, different artists playing with the figure of the hole. And I began to kind of chart that across Fluxus practice. Um, again, John Hendricks's Fluxus Codex is such an incredible resource. It really allows one to get a sense of the range of Fluxus objects. Um, you know, at one's fingertips in the form of this kind of encyclopedic um, volume charting fluxus um, objects and additions over the years. Um, so, so part part of the the chapter is talking about um, all these different evocations of the whole across across the flux box multiples, and then kind of trying to think about like what does that mean? Why 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 would the figure of the whole be useful to Fluxus artists? Um, one of the readings that I make of the boxes is that they they create a kind of structure in which everyday objects can kind of come in and come out in this sort of like non-hierarchical fashion. And you you ha you're presented with a box, and I of course have Ben Vautier's um, flux holes or box of holes in the chapter, and you open it up. And you might find straws or metal washers or rubber bands or like a picture of the inside of a tuba. And they're all holes, of course. Um, and it kind of um, creates this sort of loose taxonomy and a very kind of promiscuous semiotic logic in which one hole can be exchanged for another hole one object can be exchanged for another. And we're sort of invited to really kind of loosen our, our kind of rigid, rigid ideas about um, how everyday objects um, function or what they mean. And then um, by the end of the chapter, I kind of um, spiral that reading out into thinking about fluxus subjectivity in general. And perhaps not surprisingly, we have a lot of really beautiful portraits of fluxus artists, Yoko Ono, um, Milan Knichak, even a self-portrait, um, or maybe no, no, this was a Polaroid that Robert Watts takes of George Machunas that figure the body or emphasize the body's various holes. Um, and this for me was a kind of beautiful emblem of, of, the way in which fluxus objects and activities were so intersubjective where like maybe one person had an idea, but then another person would realize it and you get a kind of porousness of authorship that I think is figured through the whole. Um, and I guess I didn't really explain the transitional commodity part, but there is also a moment in the chapter where I try to kind of like brush Marx and Freud's ideas of the commodity against one another in order to point to how Fluxus's objects with their very kind of promiscuous uh, semiotic logic um, kind of undermine the 
conventional use values and functions of objects and bring us back to this kind of um, very childlike sense of play, um, which connects with Fluxus's like radical revolutionary goal, which we can argue about whether they achieved or not, of um, kind of evading a, a fetishistic commodity economy. So the flux boxes operate as what I call kind of transitional commodities, transitional borrowed from Winnicott's formation of the transitional object or the lovey that the child uses to kind of mature into um, adulthood or to separate from the mother, that these are transitional commodities that are that help retrain our sensibility um, to kind of liberate us from um, conventional use values of things. Because um, one of the kind of core ethics of Fluxus, um, which I didn't really mention in the beginning, was really, especially in Machunas's mind, the, that the, the revolutionary potential of Fluxus was that it would actually lead to making art obsolete. Because if you fully integrate art into everyday life, you no longer need special people, special separate people called artists, and you no longer need special separate objects called artworks. Um, and you actually then no longer need the artwork as an object, like the child no longer eventually needs the transitional object in order to feel secure in the world. Your book ends with a last chapter on Filiu and what you call the unworking of Flexus. Yeah, um, this was also a fun chapter to write through which Filiu came to be one of my favorite artists of all time. Um, so Robert Filiu doesn't often figure centrally in studies of Flexus, but when I was spending a lot of time looking at the work of Brecht, I kept gravitating toward Filiu because the two artists collaborated. Um, they knew one another through this kind of international Fluxus network, which, where people primarily communicated through the mail and were aware of one of each other's of each other's works from afar. But then they did meet in New York um, during one of Filiu's visits there, and then by 1965, Brecht um, was had kind of abandoned the States and moved to Europe and met Filiu in the South of France in this little town called Villefranche-sur-Mer, where they opened up a kind of artist studio slash bookshop slash workshop called the La Cédie qui sourit. Um, so the, the motivation of the chapter was to, to talk about La Cédie and how it um, emblematizes Fluxus um, the flux shop or kind of these artist run DIY modes of distribution um, that were experimented with. Uh, but it also entailed my having to understand Phil Yu's practice on his own much better. And he's such a fascinating figure and really deserves more work um, because he was originally trained as an economist. He got a graduate degree at UCLA. He was involved in um, a kind of post-war reconstruction project in Korea. Um, he lived in Egypt. He met his, then he went to Denmark and met his wife there and ended up in Paris and, and became an artist sort of on the encouragement um, or devoted himself to, to poetry and art making on the encouragement of Daniel Spurry. Um, really fascinating guy. Um, and he was involved in making kind, what he called kind of object poems so very much in a sort of surrealist tradition, um, um, kind of object assemblages that have behind them a kind of poetic logic, a logic of poetry. Um, so Filio was a poet, an economist, um, and also kind of a theorist. So his writings are also really interesting to read because he's thinking about, um, he's developing a kind of aesthetic political theory um, of, of artistic value. Um, so this chapter uses um, Phil Yu and Phil Yu's um, collaboration with Brecht to think about um, what begins to happen to Fluxus by the late 1960s and beyond, where this kind of like core, these core moments of, of energy and activity in, in Wiesbaden and the European concert tour and the things that happen in New York throughout the mid-1960s begin to kind of dissipate 
and the Fluxus network as it kind of spreads and becomes more well-known and gains more members at the same time becomes more kind of diffuse and um, dispersed. Um, so this is a chapter in which I kind of follow you into um, French literary theory, and I draw upon some of the theories of community and friendship of Jean-Luc Nancy and Maurice Blanchot, um, most famously this idea of the community without community and this kind of paradoxical reality that I think a lot of us can relate to that the moments, these moments we experience of the most kind of intense coming together and sense of community and togetherness are actually around moments of loss and in the most extreme case, uh, death, right? Um, so I actually talk about Machunas' funeral at a certain point um, and try to um, sort of um, suggest that Fluxus seems to kind of, um, what's the word, kind of dissemble by the 1970s. And this is perhaps one of the reasons that it actually has a kind of longevity is because it, it um, gets absorbed into so many other, other practices. In the coda of the book, you talk about fluxus in terms of the virtual. Can you talk a bit about what your closing argument is? Sure. Um, this was a chapter that I wasn't, it kind of snuck up on me. It was like one of these pieces of writing that came out of just having an experience in an exhibition and feeling very annoyed. <laughs> and so it has this kind of polemical charge behind it where I really felt like I needed to have my say about how Fluxus is understood today. Um, so it's a chapter that um, begins with this kind of contemporary commonplace of Fluxus being described as a kind of proto-internet, proto-new media art movement, leading to a kind of new media explosion, artists using all forms of technology. Um, and I'm not saying that's a totally invalid way of seeing fluxus, but what kind of irks me about it is that it represses some of the dimensions of fluxus that I find to be most valuable and that I know for the artists to have been, you know, like really among its core important qualities. And that is this very um, almost mindful, meditative um, intensity where the work of art, the event score can travel all over the world. You can send it in the mail, but what's really important is like where that instruction makes contact with reality and the kind of um, kind of um, heightened consciousness that it gives us of everyday life, which to me is like having a screen-based experience could not be more opposite of that. Um, so this chapter takes to task um, characterizations of fluxes as a proto-internet art movement. And to do so, I kind of go to the heart of the matter. And I talk about Namjoon Paik. And I revisit his early work with televisions, um, the work he's doing in 1963 in Wuppertal, when he's really like deeply into this um, vibrant emerging fluxus milieu where he is using televisions, but he's like destroying them. He's ripping out their innards. There are cords everywhere. He even displays a TV with a screen facing the floor. Um, and um, he's known as someone who kind of attacks the TV or even uses broken, obsolete televisions. Um, and I go into some of his public statements as well, where you get a better sense of Paik's really ambivalent ideas about technology and media culture. Um, and I connect Paik um, to other uh, Fluxus works and statements, namely Dick Higgins's statement on intermedia. This is a kind of a manifesto-like text that has been embraced by uh, new media people. It was republished in the journal Leonardo as a kind of 
signal text for emerging new media practices. And in Higgins's theorizations of intermedia, he talks about um, needing to use this new intermedia landscape in order to um, uh, attack and speak back to spectacle and media culture. So it's sort of these like um, antagonistic, um, Luddite, anti-technological uh, dimensions of fluxus that I'm trying to recuperate in that chapter. Um, and by the end of it, I'm pointing to an, other traditions in contemporary art that to me have a more um, direct lineage to what Fluxus was trying to do what Fluxus is trying to get at. So I don't go into these practices in depth, but in the very last paragraphs of the book, I evoke figures like Tino Segal, a performance artist who does not allow his work to be documented in photographs or video. It's very much about these in-person experiences with other bodies um, or the work of an artist like David Horvitz, who does use the internet, but really to get us back to reality, to um, our everyday experience and situation. Well, Natalie, we have taken up so much of your time. Before we end, before we hang up, can you tell us what you are working on now? Yes, to my surprise and delight, I am working on a new book project on the American artist Walter De Maria, who is best known for his minimal and land art work, but was involved on the edges of Fluxus. So I'm kind of doing a rereading of De Maria's work in the 60s and 70s and trying to surface um, his um, kind of mute the musical durational fluxusy dimensions of the work, but also specify um, how the logic of drawing threads throughout his practice. And in 2024, um, I will be launching in collaboration with um, Michael Galope and poetry scholar John Hicks, among other contributors, including um, Emily Capper, um, George Lewis, Ben Pickett, and Julia Bryan Wilson, a rather large scale um, online digital project called the Scores Project. And this also emerges out of my work in the Getty Research Institute collections. It is going to be um, an, a critical anthology of experimental notation practices in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, uh, where we highlight specific scores and then we unite them with um, audio and video documentation, ephemera, correspondence to try to really like exfoliate these works and give a larger context, a really granular context to how these, um, how scores were operating in that moment. So it's a very um, like logical extension of my work on Fluxus forms, but it takes a more, um, a more bird's eye view. Oh, it sounds really exciting. So thank you so much, Natalie, for joining us. Thank you for having me.